The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Because God did not despise or detest the suffering of the one who suffered, God did not hide God's face from me. No, God listened when I cried out to God for help. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama Enby, joined today by the wonderful L and Demo. L, as you wonderful longtime listeners know, is one of our wonderful longtime guests, co-hosts that I just always appreciate hearing from. L, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you help out with the show. Uh, Hello, dear listener. I have been recently promoted to uh, assistant producer, helping editing. I'm a Christian anarchist, and you should go join a union if you can. And the uh, editors of this podcast desperately need one because I am not paying them anything uh, until our Patreon is uh, funded. So please go fund our Patreon so we can pay our <laughs> our currently ununionized editors. But hopefully they will be changing that soon and striking against me as soon as possible. Oh, we're striking immediately. Thank you, Micah. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, as they should. And the wonderful Demo as well. Demo, this is your first time joining us, so if you could tell us a little bit about your political tendency, religious background, and how your identities inform how you come to this passage. Absolutely. Uh, Hello, everybody. My name is Demo, Demo the Fox. I am a pink internet fox, um, and I have hot takes on the internet. That's my thing. That's actually how uh, you, you met me, Micah is through one of my, I think it was originally supposed to be somewhere between a joke and an actual serious opinion. Yeah, something like that. But um, in terms of political tendency, I am some sort of Marxist. If I had to put a label on it, I would say that I was a uh, libertarian socialist. A lot of respect for anarchists though, uh, gotta say. Nice stuff, L. I guess also I'm uh, big into queer liberation, stuff like that. And religious background, I was born and raised Mormon, still am Mormon, and I plan to be until I die or until they kick me out, whichever comes first. And I also have read a lot of uh, theology, specifically the works of Adam Miller. I certainly bring a a lot of that uh, sort of continental philosophical lens to whenever I read the scriptures. And if you want to find me anywhere, I'm on Tumblr at Demo is Very Sexy. It's a joke name. Don't ask me to explain it. I also make video games on itch.io, and my name there is demo-the-fox.itch.io. So check me out if you like uh, video games made by foxes. <laughs> we'll jump right on into the text. Genesis 32 through 33:17. Jacob went on his way, and God's messengers approached him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he named that sacred place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau toward the land of Seir, the open country of Edom. He gave them these orders. Say this to my master Esau, this is the message of your servant Jacob. I've lived as an immigrant with Laban, where I've stayed till now. I own cattle, donkeys, flocks, men servants, and women servants. I'm sending this message to my master, now to ask that he be kind. 
The messengers returned to Jacob and said, We went out to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you with four hundred men. Jacob was terrified and felt trapped, so he divided the people with him and the flocks, cattle, and camels into two camps. He thought, If Esau meets the first camp and attacks it, at least one camp will be left to escape. Jacob said, Lord God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I'll make sure things go well for you. I didn't deserve how loyal and truthful you've been to your servant. I went away across the Jordan with just my staff, but now I've become two camps. Save me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid he will come and kill me, the mothers and their children. You are the one who told me, I will make sure things go well for you, and I will make your descendants like the sand on the sea, so many you won't be able to count them. Jacob spent that night there. From what he had acquired, he set aside a gift for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty nursing camels with their young, forty cows and ten bulls, and twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. He separated these herds and gave them to his servants. He said to them, Go ahead of me and put some distance between each of the herds. He ordered the first group, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, Who are you with? Where are you going? And whose herds are these in front of you? Say, They are your servant Jacob's, a gift sent to my master Esau. And Jacob is actually right behind us. He also ordered the second group, the third group, and everybody following the herds, Say exactly the same thing to Esau when you find him. Say also, Your servant Jacob is right behind us. Jacob thought, I may be able to pacify Esau with a gift I am sending ahead. When I meet him, perhaps he will be kind to me. So Jacob sent the gift ahead of him, but he spent that night in the camp. Jacob got up during the night, took his two wives, his two woman servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the Jabuk River's shallow water. He took them and everything that belonged to him, and he helped them cross the river. But Jacob stayed apart by himself, and a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. When the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. The man said, Let me go, because the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. He said to Jacob, What's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you struggled with God and with men, and won. Jacob also asked and said, Tell me your name. But he said, Why ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, because I have seen God face to face, and my life has been saved. The sun rose as Jacob passed Penuel, limping because of his thigh. Therefore Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the thigh muscle to this day, because he grabbed Jacob's thigh muscle at the tendon. Jacob looked up and saw Esau approaching with four hundred men. Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two women servants. He put the servants and their children first, Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went in front of them and bowed to the ground seven times as he was approaching his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Esau looked up and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children that God generously gave your servant. The woman's servants and their children came forward and bowed. Then Leah and her servants also came forward and bowed. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed. Esau said, What's the meaning of this entire group of animals that I met? Jacob said, To ask for my master's kindness. Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what's yours. Jacob said, No, please, do me the kindness of accepting my gift. 
Seeing your face is like seeing God's face, since you've accepted me so warmly. Take this present that I have brought, because God has been generous to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob persuaded him, and he took it. Esau said, Let's break camp and set out, and I'll go with you. But Jacob said to him, My master knows that the children aren't strong, and that I am responsible for nursing flocks and cattle. If I push them hard for even one day, all of the flocks will die. My master, go on ahead of your servant, but I've got to take it easy, going only as fast as the animals in front of me and the children are able to go, until I meet you in Seir. Esau said, Let me leave some of my people with you. But Jacob said, Why should you do this, since my master has already been so kind to me? That day Esau returned on the road to Seir, but Jacob traveled to Sukkot. He built a house for himself, but made temporary shelters for his animals. Therefore he named the place Sukkot. So here in this story, we have a movement that is, first off, transitioning away from the story that had just been told. Jacob is finally able to get free of his uncle Laban, who had kept him as virtually a slave for all of these years, had constantly cheated him out of the wages that he was owed, and when he finally was able to get the wages he was owed, it turned out to be far over and beyond anything that Laban had hoped to give him. And so he was actually able to get the means of his own production (laughs) and then began to produce enough that he could be considered a wealthy and comfortable man. And that's not to say that this is not still a hierarchical story, right? (laughs) There are clearly people beneath Jacob who are not in possession of the means of production. But we see this liberation from what he was under here in this story. And then he goes out, and as he's struggling with trying to understand what he's going to do when he sees Esau, he's terrified of his brother. And then he has this moment where someone comes into the camp and wrestles with him. And this wrestling seems to change things, that that although Jacob is still afraid, he's blessed in this moment. This moment where he is expecting the ultimate curse, to have not only himself and all of his possessions and all of his children killed, He is instead blessed by this stranger, and he sees whether this stranger is God or simply a representation of God or simply someone who is standing in as a stranger as God has been a stranger in Jacob's life for a little while, that now Jacob sees God face to face, knows that he will be okay, and even though he's still a little bit afraid of Esau, he understands that kindness is coming. This great divide that had happened, because Jacob wrestled with God, is now going to be healed. So, this is just one of my favorite stories. It is one of the central stories of Judaism. It is one of the central understandings that my rabbi, (laughs) one of my rabbis as I was exploring Judaism, really had for Judaism. That instead of a faith that's you know, about salvation or like, you know, saying the magic words and getting saved, that that this was a faith of a people who knew that life could be hard, that life could be extremely difficult, where you could escape one terrible situation and go to another one expecting it to be just as terrible, and yet wrestling with God resulted in a better result for those people. That even if the next thing they were going into was still bad— that wrestling with God was worth it, and that wrestling with God helped people get out of that situation, if not simply because it helped them understand where they were coming from, but that the wrestling itself was worth it. Anyway, sorry, I I don't mean to dominate the conversation. I'd love to hear y'all's take on this story. Um, Micah, do you know what beshirt 
is... Do you mean Bereshit? Maybe. In the text that I was looking at, it was spelled B apostrophe S-H-E-R-T. Yes. And I came across that in one of the readings I did for this episode. It's like the, the Jewish concept of fate and the realignment towards God's will, which had a really interesting Jacob as the hero's journey and like what kind of heroic archetype he was. And he's the trickster turned magician in that. But in all of his suffering and struggle and challenge... I'm really not trying to victim blame, but he stole his brother's blessing with deceit. He's like, he wants some beans. Give me your birthright. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, he and his mother tricked his father into taking Esau's blessing then. And whether or not it was right of the time for the firstborn to be given everything, God still had a plan for Jacob to be a father of a nation and be fruitful and to have a good life. It's just nobody trusted that from the beginning and it set Jacob up as this listless, like, I, I'm jealous of what Esau is going to have, so I'm going to go take it. The story of him wrestling God, squaring up mano y mano, is the only time he legitimately receives a blessing and like it's like his real blessing. It's what he's actually earned. It's what he deserves. And he's had a change of heart and a change of character because it's the first time he didn't do any trickery. He didn't do any sneaky, like... He humbled himself to the secondary position from the very beginning of the passage before he even wrestles God or the angel or whoever. He calls himself a servant to Esau. He calls Esau his master. Like, he has, like, humbled himself. It's one of my favorite stories because the route to reconciliation and to, like, a restorative justice, this, like, humbling of yourself and your own ego and finding who you are, too. What you are standing for. And he got his brother back in the end. And I love that. Yeah. (laughs) But it's interesting that you say that it's sort of a a fate question here, because I I have never read that that way. You know, there is this chaos, right? This this chaos that Jacob has really made out of his life by constantly being a trickster, right? By constantly, you know, having the way that things are supposed to be and then and then flipping those things on its head brings him to this place where suddenly he has to wrestle with God and, and like you were saying, you know, deal with that, humble himself and come to this place to be able to deal with this. Now, I, I want to push back on the humility, but I want to hear Demo's thoughts first. This whole section is very interesting, especially when you could put it in conversation with some earlier verses. Um, and just one, one brief thing before I do that. I just think it's funny that even here, Jacob is still playing the trickster trying to like butter up his brother by saying like like one gift's like oh jacob's right behind us another gift oh jacob's right behind us uh you know even here even here he's he's uh gone from the chaotic good rather than uh chaotic uh neutral i guess you could say that's just the magician in him Mm. when will the scarfs end you don't know it's uh jacob's coming right behind us as someone who does do uh, magic tricks as a hobby um the difference between a uh, card cheat and the magician is whether or not the person tells you they're cheating. <laughs> so this section in particular uh, is something that stands out to me. Going back to verse 9. Jacob said, Lord, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make sure things go well for you. I don't deserve how loyal and truthful you've been to your servant. I went away across the Jordan with just my staff, but now I've become two camps. 
Save me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid he will come and kill me. The mothers and their children. You are the one who told me, I will make sure things go well for you, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, so many you won't be able to count them. And then, what? there is no answer. Jacob doesn't get an answer. Instead, he wrestles with God. And I think there's something interesting about that, you know. God doesn't necessarily hand us, you know, easy answers. He doesn't necessarily hand us easy solutions. I think, and it's interesting to me too that, you know, rather than like some glorious vision, you know, we get this this wrestling, you know, trying to just stay on top, trying to trying to win, I guess, but not even that necessarily, just trying to not get your head bashed in. <laughs> but I don't know, it's interesting to me that rather than providing something simple and easy, a simple consolation, you know, we get this wrestling and then Jacob is named Israel, which I'm not, and I've got a couple definitions here, uh, according to the uh, NRSV and the King James. The, the, not according to these, these are just, you know, interpretations in these two different versions of the Bible I have. It's either uh, let God prevail, or he perseveres with God, one who strives with God, or God strives. One of those uh, different translations. What's important here, in, in some sense, I think what's important here, it's not that God is providing anything easy or simple, but that Jacob is both fighting alongside and fighting with God. Fighting with in both senses, I guess you could say. Even though Jacob wins here, in a very real sense, you know, God has still prevailed in Jacob's life because Jacob was willing to have this wrestle. I I love that take. God doesn't answer. Like, <laughs> you know, he, Jacob is sitting here pouring his heart out to God, and God doesn't come through the clouds and declare, it's going to be okay, buddy. God doesn't come through and, you know, offer this these trite things like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll work all things together for good, which is a pretty shitty thing to say when you think you're about to die, right? <laughs> you know, it, God isn't offering easy answers here, and... You know, throughout the book of Job, there are there are just easy answers, right? Those are the things that that often people who are mourning don't need to hear, like it's your fault or this is all part of God's plan and all those sort of things. And rather than showing up like Job's friends and saying, "Sit down, shut up, I got it figured out. I have an easy theology that makes this all simple, and and your suffering is deserved, and or this is going to bring you closer to God or anything like that," instead, God shows up and doesn't make it easy right? <laughs> Jacob has to keep clinging. And the thing he's renamed is strives, right? He clings on to, he holds on to desperately, even though it is difficult. You know, God <laughs> seems to want him to let go, at least in this story, right? And so, God changes Jacob's name into something that you will not let me go, and the promise being, I will not let you go either. God shows up here in the midst of the struggle, not with easy answers, but to say, I'm here, and we're going to wrestle together. I work with people who experience homelessness every day, and one of my first days on the job, I was running around thinking that I'm big and important, and somebody sat me down, and I was just sitting there with, with some of our folks, and they realized my name was Micah, and said, like, oh, that's a prophet. Come, sit down. What do you know about the Bible? And and uh, I'm like, well, you know, I happen to be a minister. And, <laughs> and so suddenly, you know, and suddenly they're like, yeah, let's talk about this. And it was a great conversation, but it, it was this kid who is not very old. You know, he, he 
early 20s at the latest. And he sat there and he told me that we don't have a right to be angry with God. This is a kid who is experiencing homelessness, like is in absolute depths of poverty. Like he, he, if anybody has a right to be angry with God, it is someone who doesn't have the social network to be able to fall back on when they become homeless. If anyone has a right to be angry with God, it's that guy. And he sits there and tells me that we don't have a right to be angry with God. And we argue for we don't argue, argue, but, you know, we're going back and forth. We're pointing at different passages. We're, we're doing all these things for a better part of an hour. I am convinced that God is a big enough girl that she can handle it. You know, she can put on her big girl pants and take all of my frustration and take all of my anger and all of those things. I think that's what we're supposed to do in this passage. But I think that oftentimes my position is like, well, I'm a privileged person who hasn't experienced a lot of the suffering. Why am I experiencing this suffering? And how much of that wrestling is wrestling with God versus wrestling with the fact that I haven't experienced these things because I'm incredibly privileged? And how are the ways that my suffering is affecting me a little bit going to change the way that I can show up for someone who has a lot less than I do, but can still come away from that loving God and despite, you know, wrestling with God in his own way, can can understand others to a deeper extent than I can because I've never experienced that depth of suffering. That's not to say that suffering is good. That's not to say that we should experience suffering on purpose. That the early church had a lot to say about the fact that martyrs should not be people who, you know, run off to try and get themselves killed, but that how can we wrestle with our experiences to come away with it as something that benefits us and helps us love others and love God better? I think one thing I'm jumping ahead a little bit to, you know, the Christian bit of the Bible, the stuff that's unique to Christianity. I think there's something rather instructive in uh, Jesus here, uh, right, when he's in Gethsemane, jumping ahead to Luke 2, just verse 42. He's uh, suffering in Gethsemane. He says, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I think that nevertheless is kind of key. You know, Christ here says, you know, is similar to, to Jacob, is very much about, please deliver me from this, take me away from whatever I am going to go through. But at the end of the day, that nevertheless, I think, is key. That's, I think, the action of faith. And I think we see that a little bit here, too, in this wrestling, where rather than running away, rather than retreating, Jacob takes part. He stays put. He stays with God, whatever God has in store for him, rather than retreating. I think that's kind of key, that wrestling is very present and grounded. It's the most intimate sort of fighting there is. There's very few things that are more present than, you know, being locked in physical combat with someone. And I think, I think you know, a little bit of symmetry there. Yeah, absolutely. In our current society, like, we have all of these reasons to not suffer for our neighbor, right? It can get you ticketed to give people food in the park, right? You know, you can, if you're trying to start a Food Not Bombs program, uh, first off, you're labeled as a terrorist because you want to give food to people. <laughs> if that makes me a terrorist, then sign me up. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, yeah, it depends on the area you're in, but you can get arrested because you're dumpster diving, you can get arrested because you're passing out leftist literature, you know, we have all of these sorts of situations where we put ourselves at risk 
And imagine how much more bold we would be if we say, (laughs) I'm going to go and do this thing. I know it's going to be hard. And God, I trust you to wrestle with me as I go through this. And there are maybe potential consequences, but the payoff might be we defeat capitalism, right? The payoff might be I'm reunited with the brother that has been profoundly disconnected from me, that my society has told me that I am enemies against. But when you actually bother to to get over this fear of the other, you can actually become united in community with one another. Just today, I was talking with somebody and they were talking about Palestine and they were saying, well, just just wait until you find out that uh, the Palestinians don't love your queer ass. And I was like, well, the difference between being a, a right-winger and a left-winger is that right-wingers think that they should only have freedom for people who are like them. And leftists think that we should have freedom for all people. And it's not like there aren't queer Palestinians. There are. They've got bigger problems to worry about right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. The fact of the matter is that like, we are seeking the liberation of all people, even the people who don't seek our liberation. And that is because there's these false dichotomies that are set up between us, that that if we get liberation for the Palestinians, that suddenly that will mean oppression for me as a queer person. That is a false dichotomy. If we get liberation for Palestinians, maybe we'll start loving each other enough to go, oh, that was something that I disagreed with. But now that I know you and I'm intimate with you, we can change the way that we understand each other. And we can grow and develop as human beings. And I can understand you better and you can understand me better. And we can come to a place where we love each other despite our differences and despite the barriers that systems like capitalism have erected to keep us divided. And I think that can be applied to this wrestle too. Oh yeah. Because of this wrestle and that God and Jacob had, they came to a new understanding. That is a uh, a great segue into uh, intimacy and penis grabbing. Let's get Freudian. <laughs> One of the things that I love most about Hebrew is that it is an incredibly euphemistic language. In some of our episodes, we've dived deep into the fact that there are probably different retellings and different editors of these stories that are trying to explain things in slightly different ways. And so one of the differences that probably is here in the text is the bit about the thigh. Uh, so in verse 25, but the man saw he couldn't defeat Jacob. He grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled. And And then a little while later, there in verse 32, there's an explanation of that verse. Therefore, Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the thigh muscle to this day because he grabbed Jacob's thigh muscle at the tendon. Now, that verse, if it was written by the same person, would seem to indicate that it was part of the original story, that it's clearly just the thigh, the thigh that has the tendon that the Israelites don't eat today. But the fact of the matter is that that tendon, that that line that uh, Israelites don't eat the tendon to this day is almost certainly a later source, the Deuteromistic source that came in and added that sort of detail to say, no, this is really explaining that because they know the word thigh could be understood to be penis. Deuteronomy guys are like, it's not the penis. (laughs) We're normal about our scriptures, I swear. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was the penis, right? We already see God and Abraham grabbing each other's balls to make a covenant, right? We already see all of these sort of things interplayed. The mark of the covenant is the removal of some skin on the penis. It is a little bit of this life-giving thing. So it absolutely makes sense that here in this story, God is grabbing Jacob's penis as he's doing this, and there is some sort of rupture, that there's some sort of break. Now, 
We do know that Jacob has another child after this. Spoiler alert, Benjamin will come after this wrestling. But it is... I think that we should delve into the way <laughs> that the penis is, for lack, lack of a better term, being played with in the literature. I, one brief humorous aside, as someone who is Mormon myself, Joseph Smith was kind of obsessed with translations. He was very big into that. He was translating throughout his entire life up until he died, like always reading and rereading, providing his own interpretations that he believed were divinely inspired. And often, whenever the word thigh comes up, especially in that one instance of, you know, grabbing each other by the thigh, read actually the penis, to make covenants, he got rid of that too. He even got rid of the thigh reference and uh, said that, no, they were actually grabbing each other's hands instead. I, I think it's interesting that... Ah. <laughs> a very manly handshake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like often with our modern Christian sensibilities that we took from those Torians and Puritans that we're often a little bit squeamish about, about anything to do with sex in the Bible. In Mormonism too, there's this belief that the Song of Solomon wasn't divinely inspired, which I think is a damn shame. I mean, who doesn't want canonized erotica, right? <laughs> Taking it to something a little more serious, I think it's, you know, intimacy is very important since, you know, God is, you know, messy and intimate. I don't think we should shy away from embodied physical notion of God. Absolutely. And it, it, it roots back to that God is the source of life of all of creation. That's the point of Bereshit. That's the point of the book of Genesis, right? And what does God do? God grabs onto the source of life for Jacob, right? Um, Jacob's progeny. And yeah, I, I we should absolutely talk about the penis as a gateway to uh, the ego and, and the id and, and the self and all of those things. The, the id is the unconscious instinct. The ego is the thing that is all about me, me, me. And then the superego is stuff that you absorb from, from culture that kind of is the bit that evaluates the ego. Going back to that her hero's journey that I mentioned, all of Jacob's life is ruled by his ego, his I, his like, I desire what Esau has. I want Rachel. I want a bunch of speckled animals. Jacob starts his journey, his heroic journey on a literal journey. He goes and lays down and has the dream of Jacob's ladder. It was a metaphor to kind of show him sort of the stages of ego shifting into the higher self and purpose and meaning and his entire like process, his journey, his dealing with Laban. He was the trickster getting tricked when Laban was like, mm, you're gonna marry Leah. <laughs> you gotta work some more for Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> So here we have the shadow self. Like, is is that fair to say that like he's constantly pleasing the shadow self? He's trapped in what Eastern philosophies call the wheel of life that like keeps you stuck on this realm and doing the same things over and over. You get into really negative patterns. All of that deception has inf infected his family unit. Leia and Rachel have a rivalry, a, a pretty toxic rivalry between them, where like all Leia wants is Jacob's love, and all Rachel wants is the ability to. She gets all the love, but she can't have children, and Leia's just popping them out left and right. <laughs> All that discord comes from Jacob himself, starting things off with pleasing his shadow self, his ego, his id. And then once he's 
in this wrestling match with God, God's got him by the balls, by the ego. (laughs) And Jacob won't let go of God either, which is a pretty impressive thing. It's a terrible injury, but to keep fighting on after that, like, I think it's a draw. One thing that's interesting, if you take a Lacanian approach to it, and uh, Jacques Lacan was a disciple of Freud, to Lacan, the the penis uh, is a symbol of power. And what's the worst thing that you can do to a man, according to Freud and Lacan, uh, is to take away his power, to, you know, remove his penis, to castrate him. God, in a sense, is sort of taking away Jacob's power. I think that's interesting, too, because if we're looking at this from a Freudian perspective, the ego is all about power. The ego is all about control and trying to dominate everything. Uh, Freud was a very, very much interested in this sort of patriarchal view of the world. And the ego certainly is has this sort of conquest vibe, very much, you know, about property and penises and things like that. God takes that away. God takes away that drive for power and instead gives Jacob a name. Jacob transcends his ego and finds a new identity through this action. He's gotten his selfhood, his... He knows he's earned this sort of perception of himself as like wrestling with God too because he he didn't let him go until he got that blessing. Yeah I think something that's interesting is I'm not even sure that this is something that Jacob necessarily earned because I don't know it's I'm, I'm always skeptical about the idea of anyone being able to earn anything so maybe that's just me being stodgy but like well you know can anyone earn anything even with God but yeah yeah <laughs> what I'm really hearing from this Jacob, you know, was essentially castrated and, you know, got a name change that Jacob has ascended gender and we should all be trans. That's that's what I'm hearing here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and like Jacob is this gender non-conforming character throughout his whole life. Like he's the one that goes and stays and like cooks the things when his brother is out. But I, I just love a little bit of what Elle was saying is like in these Eastern philosophies that you're stuck in this cycle of life where you go to the nine to five and you hope that you can go to the nine to five and work hard enough to be able to, you know, get yourself the white picket fence in suburbia so you can go back to your nine to five so you can have exactly the same life over and over again, right? Where you're stuck in this cycle of like meaninglessness, right? This cycle where you're experiencing life, but you're really just going through the motions, right? Like Jacob's selfishness is distancing himself from his own family, right? In the same way that the selfishness of capitalism drives us from our own families. Capitalism often drives us to take on too much work, to come home with too much stress, to not be able to truly connect with the people that we love, that it doesn't actually give us enough time to be with our children after they're born, that that doesn't allow us to take time off to care for a loved one, um, unless you're privileged enough to have a job that allows that sort of thing, that all of these things, that because he's so fueled by ego, he's stuck in this position of constantly trying to feed his ego, and God takes care of it by taking away his power, by affecting his penis, by taking away this this symbol that I think we have good reason to think is a symbol that throughout human history has meant power, right? What are our tallest structures? They're they're the obelisks, exactly, that are everywhere, that almost every culture has erected, right? The sky penis. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, like, there's all of these, this 
penis imagery that is supposed to be tall and domineering. And we've talked before about the ways that like wells, which are these small little areas that go deep underground, you don't see very much of it, symbolize women, right? And women's and uh, our yonic imagery in that way. And they're the opposite of this tall, grand thing that is all about power. Jacob is only able to actually cling to God and have a relationship with God when he gives up that power. He's only able to have a relationship with Esau when he gives up that power. He's only able to reunite his family when he stops pursuing the endless pursuits that capitalism drive us towards and instead gives up that power to love others. It's almost like this story is an anarchist story from the beginning. <laughs> That's a good take. And in a real sense, I think uh, God is taking away Jacob's power so they can finally meet as equals. Like, for the first time, Jacob is able to see God. And up in, actually, up until this point, it's not really clear that this is God. Uh, right after God whacks him in the dick, then we start to get the hints that this is indeed God. I think the reason that humility is so important in approaching God is not necessarily because God is above us, but because God, rather than, you know, us putting ourselves beneath God, we need to stop putting ourselves above God and start seeing God eye to eye. Another comparative thing to the circle of life, cycle of life, wheel of life kind of idea is I. it was either Jung or it was Freud, but one of them had this notion of compulsiveness that keeps people trapped in like some sort of self-hatred pattern that leads into sort of like a Greek tragedy type. You're obviously like manifesting your own doom. For myself personally, I dealt with a lot of self-hatred and a lot of internalized misogyny. And when I was like really wrestling with that and deconstructing that, wrestling with God, I had to go deep into like the ego of being a white woman in this country and like all the power dynamics of what things those meant and sort of the negative power structures that I was upholding by embracing any of this misogyny that I had inside of me and reckon with who else I was hurting and it was like a total it changed my idea of who I was luckily and I felt so much better afterwards. It was like being metaphorically grabbed by the balls and like <laughs> hurt. Yeah. Your power was stripped from you. Because you mentioned Eastern philosophies. It's a very similar sort of thing. Um, specifically with Buddhism, you know, there's this idea too that like we look to ourselves as though we can, you know, earn our own cessation. We can earn enlightenment through our own, through either like finding pleasure or weathering pain as though pleasure or pain will be the things that save us. And if we just do a good enough job at getting through painful things, or if we get enough pleasure in life that we will finally be able to, you know, have cessation, that we will finally be able to stop sort of having to exist in the world. I think one of the key insights of Buddhism is that both of these things are really the same thing. Both pleasure principle, as Freud would put it, and the death drive, you know, both you know, seeking for pleasure to gratify the, the ego or to annihilate the ego through pain, you know, both of them are putting me at the center of the universe. And it's only when God intervenes and takes away our power, gets us out of the center of our story, that we can finally start living. And I think it's really interesting here that Jacob, you know, up until now, has been very afraid. He's been very much talking about me, 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 and, you know, oh, am I going to die? Is it going to be about me, me, me? But 
after this, he is finally able to have reconciliation. He is finally able to see the other people around him and to see eye to eye with his brother. It's not about him anymore. It's about his relationship with his brother and about healing the wound that he has caused. If I was supposed to be the center of my universe, then why is it that when I become the center of my own universe, it is so isolating? And that is what capitalism tries to do, right? You are an individual. You are primarily a consumer. Your desires and your wants are the most important thing in the world and screw every other consideration. And that's why conservatives try to make the center of existence the family, right? Because like only your family matters. Your family is the only people that matter, right? But, but the family is also coded as in the dad is the only one that matters. Yes. Capital T, capital F family. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> the family by which everything else is owned. All of those things are just so isolating, right? They leave you alone. They leave you with your family, but it doesn't allow you to extend beyond yourself in any real meaningful sort of way. So I love that idea of when we realize we are not the center of the universe, that we get to be a part of loving everyone else in the universe. There is no real center of the universe, right? That we're all revolving around and trying our best to hold on. <laughs> and maybe we can hold on to the person next to us a little bit tighter so that they stay on too. And the next person after that. It's, it's a great heel turn to baby face. One of the most interesting things that, that really comes out of the story is the way that this metaphor of wrestling really applies to our modern conception of wrestling. And like understanding, like somebody was trying to tell me the other day, you can only understand the Bible by the ancient tradition and the way that it's read. Ugh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, you're constantly interpreting the Bible in light of your own experience. Like, that is why every time you go to the text, you get something different because you're a different person the second time you read it, or the fourth or the 18th. And so, That's like, the reason Socrates was against books. Because <laughs> somebody writes it down, and then somebody else thinks that's the only way you ever got to interpret it and talk about it. And that's the only way. You can only look at it through that one lens. And Socrates was like, that's the worst. We shouldn't have books. <laughs> one of the downsides of that view of, of you know saying that the historical model is the only model through which we can view the scriptures. And not to say that we can't view it through that model. I love that model. It's it, it provides a lot of insight. But I think one thing that's key here is that it denies God's power to speak down. You know, and this is something we Mormons are very big on. Is we're very into the idea of God still speaks, right? The church that I fled to after I left uh, fundamentalist Christianity was the United Church of Christ. And their their motto is, God is still speaking. And they end that motto with a comma. So the UCC is very big on God is still speaking. How are we interpreting this scripture in light of how we understand things today? That all is a giant pivot to say, tell me, Elle, all about the way that Jacob is kayfabe. <laughs> At this point, I was like, the entire Bible's kind of kayfabe. <laughs> so before we do anything else, please explain what kayfabe means. <laughs> so kayfabe is a professional wrestling term. It's the manufactured story that they're trying to tell. It, it's the mythology of these characters you see play out and struggle before you in the ring. And this story is the most overtly, this is a pro wrestling story, just like 
in biblical times. Jacob is literally born a heel, which is like the bad guy. He's born grasping onto Esau's heel. I think the Hebrew Jacob has the word heel in it. So like he's literally a professional wrestling heel. And he has kind of, he has moments where like you are like rooting for him when he like pulls one over on Laban. That's totally like the big show, like kind of playing heel or baby face or face, which is like the good guy. But like in professional wrestling, there's plenty of heels who like, they're just like, they're such guys. They're so charismatic. You got to root for them anyways. Like The Undertaker. We love The Undertaker. For those of you who don't know anything about wrestling, I know very little about wrestling, but The Undertaker was the coolest wrestler of all time. He's still wrestling. He, what? How? He died. He canonically died like six times. He canonically died because he is the undead. Yo, okay, fair enough, fair enough. He killed his whole family and burnt his house down, but oh no, his brother Kane was actually inside the house, and then Kane survived, but he's got horrible scars, and he's a bad guy too. Wait, brother was literally named Kane? Well, his famous move is the Mark of Kane. No, but like, it's, def- it's definitely like a... A nod, but it's it's just not spelled the same. Uh, did you guys know that God wrestled in, uh, in 2005? <laughs> he was part of a tag team match with Shawn Michaels. Uh, God, I'm sure God has a great sense of humor. <laughs> you know, Vince McMahon was like, God, I don't like how your intro's going. Let, let's jazz it up. Uh, God was just a beam of light. <laughs> That's amazing. If I could add, my understanding of kayfabe is like essentially the like the facade that it is real, right? Like we all acknowledge that wrestling isn't real. Kayfabe is the agreement that we're all going to play as if it is. And kayfabe is sort of what they try to do to maintain it. Like you, you'll never see Shawn Michaels out of character. That's not as true today. We've entered a neo-kayfabe, which is more what I think is the Bible than just kayfabe. Like back in the day, these guys, you know, some do hate each other in real life because a lot of wrestlers can be assholes and do a lot of terrible things. But a lot would be like buddies, but like they'd be playing, you know, mortal enemies on stage and they would get in trouble if they were in an incident outside of wrestling and they got caught together. Like, what do you what do you mean you two guys are mortal enemies you're not supposed to be hanging out like what do you, McMahon has like fired people over that today it's a little bit it's a little bit more different um and entering in the like neo kayfabe it's taking things that are really happening in wrestlers lives like the whole god coming to do a tag team match with Shawn Michaels. That's because Shawn Michaels like really had a conversion and Vince McMahon was pissed at that. He didn't like that. So McMahon was like, I'm going to fuck with you like this. I think McMahon was pissed at God because God blew out his quads one year before while he was climbing into the ring. (laughs) Both his quads blew. Um, He was just like crawling in and then he sat on the ground like a little baby. (laughs) No sympathy. You know, God works in mysterious ways because McMahon's son, Shane, nearly 20 years later at WrestleMania 39, Shane's quads blew out (laughs) just like his father. A mark back in, and still today, is someone who, like, believes the kayfabe. They believe in it literally. So it's kind of like 
certain Christians today taking the Bible at its most surface level basic element. And then smarts were the people who knew it was fake, but were still like enjoying it and getting things out of it anyways. Because a story can be powerful and meaningful, even if it's not 100% true. There may have been like play fighting drama, but there's serious things happening there in the wrestling world. You know, Stone Cold Steve Austin broke his neck on TV. Owen Hart died live on a pay-per-view. Oh my. I kind of want to get on my little soapbox for wrestlers because all these marks being like wrestling is real question mark led to the complete neglect of McMahon being prosecuted for pushing steroids, which absolutely decimated a couple generations of wrestlers who are considered independent contractors. They have no health care and they have traumatic brain injuries. They drop dead at 40. It's horrifying. And then there's also been just like the rampant like Owen Hart's death, neglect on the part of the company to make sure these guys are safe doing what they're doing because they're doing an exhibition. The storyline might not be real, but the prowess and physicality that they're doing is real and there's danger to it, which is why I I consider it to be like a a masculine drag because they were rolling around on thumbtacks. They were cutting each other up with barbed wire. They are jumping off of cages that are 30 feet in the air. Yeah, you know, this point that you're making about Marx versus Smarts is so important, not to put myself in the Smarts category, right? But the difference being that, like, when you don't treat the Bible with respect for what it is, then you put the Bible in danger of being injured and abused. Like, you know, we see this all the time, that the Bible, which is the story of people trying to figure out how to love God and love neighbors, used and abused to hate other people, right? That is used and interpreted in such a way that it just abuses queer people and women and people of color and oppressed people and Palestinians and all of these different groups that this book of love is used to destroy. And that's because we're sitting here pretending like the book is meant to be read in one way, as if it is just real, just historically accurate, rather than a book that is really complicated and has fiction in it and has all sorts of different genres that are supposed to be interpreted in different ways and supposed to be interpreted in the light of our understanding in different ways. And when we only interpret it in that literal way, you know, when we see Owen Hart die and we can't sit here and say, oh, that's because in reality, that all the safety that he was supposed to get has been abused. All of these things are supposed to happen. When we just accept the Bible as whatever our pastor tells us to believe, then that opens us up to all sorts of abuse and all sorts of abuse of power because it is just that person in leadership who tells us what it is, rather than us being able to read the Bible and say, okay, well, I've actually gotten something different from you, because I'm a human being with life experiences that sees this thing in a different light than you do. And that's okay. And that's something we're supposed to do, (laughs) that we're supposed to wrestle with the text, that we're supposed to wrestle with God as they're talking about what's happening here in this story. Yeah, you you should be questioning and wrestling with it like 
Yeah, absolutely. And the Bible tells us to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, right? That Like, we're supposed to be wrestling with these sort of things. But Christianity so often has taken this perspective that you believe what I believe or you get out, where Jesus's constant refrain is, act like I do, love other people, and you're in. <laughs> For sure. And I think, again, it comes down to that whole thing of when you try to limit the Bible, heck, let's say if you try to limit God to being one thing, that's essentially a form of idol worship. You're denying God's ability to speak through imperfect texts, to speak through fiction, to speak through the Bible as it is, as opposed to what you want it to be. And one thing, I'm going to steal this shamelessly from Adam Miller, he has this idea that uh, power is not just something that is actual, but is also potential, right? Like, if power is only expressed in what has actually happened, what is demonstrably provable, you know, then God is hampered. You know, God can't create, God can't take part in new things and new formations and potential realities, which is, I think, a brilliant defense of fiction as a medium of inspiration. But really, at the end of the day, you know, you could say, as uh, Paul does in Timothy, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 5. There's a form of godliness there, but it's denying the actual power of God, of the scriptures, that these things contain. Yeah, I often end debates with fundamentalists and conservatives by simply saying, your God isn't powerful enough for me. <laughs> like, my God is just more powerful than you. My God said throughout the scriptures that they want to save all people, that they're not willing that any should perish, but that all shall receive eternal life. That just as through Adam all died, that through Christ all shall live. My God is just bigger than yours. <laughs> and your God has to leave out a whole lot of scripture that says my God wins. <laughs> And that my God loves me, despite what your God has to say. And these limitations that we try to place on God, I think, are our idolatry, our heresy in the broadest sense of the word. That, like, you're not imagining God to be capable of what God says they want to do, which is the ultimate redemption of all people. And that happens when we are willing to give up our power, give up our power over our vision of God, and let God be God wrestling with us to figure out how we can love our neighbor better. El, Demo, any, any last thoughts before we wrap up? I'd, I'd just like to take it back to that whole idea of God isn't easy. God loves us. God will support us. God will you know, be with us, whatever that looks like, even if it's difficult. But at the end of the day, God is, God is our God, and God will be here for us when we need them, whatever that looks like. And I think that, and that God is in a very real sense with us, and that God is suffering along with us as we, God is willing to get, get his hands dirty and wrestle with us and get hurt along with us. Remember, if God's got you by the balls, grab them back and don't let go until they bless you. Amen. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> <A> freaking man. <laughs> 
thank you, Demo and Al, for a wonderful conversation that just brings me so much joy. Please come back soon and <laughs> keep having these conversations with me. And thank you, dear listener, for continuing to support the show, sharing us all over the place. We are just growing by leaps and bounds so much faster than I expected to. By the time that you're hearing this audio, we will have launched our uh, limited edition buttons that you can get from the original logo of the show, handmade by me, Micah, the wise old llama MB, and sent to your house if you are in the continental US. We'll figure something out if you are not there. <laughs> so please go and support the program on Patreon. You can also get the buttons by offering a one-time donation of whatever you can afford. But we just want to make sure that we are actually able to pay our editors and hopefully soon uh, begin paying our co-hosts as well because they deserve to be in the union as well. <laughs> so thank y'all so much. Again, if you cannot afford to donate, please go and share this podcast on all the social medias, wherever you go. And thank you for listening. We so appreciate each and every one of you. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go and escape the cycle of meaningless life that clings to power and give it up so that we can share power with those beside us and enter into a life that is truly meaningful. Shalom. The penis was a segue. (laughs) 